Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Liz. And welcome to A Dose of Dizzy. Your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research. We are to episode eight of our second season, and it's I'm starting to get the back to school vibes. I feel yep. like they're hitting me. I feel like it's hitting every day, single day. We're uh, thanks for joining us, everyone. We're so excited to have you listen to another episode of A Dose of Dizzy. We have a great topic that uh, we're going to do our best to present <laughs> at this point. But Liz, why don't you uh, let everyone know what we're presenting on this uh, this month? So if you didn't already see on the Instagram this month, we're focusing on pediatric vestibular disorders, everything from, you know, incidence and prevalence to maybe some considerations if you are testing the pediatric population. And I think, you know, one reason this was of interest, there's first of all been some new studies and diagnostic criteria that I think are really important everybody know about. And secondly, this is an underserved population. And I think Um, you know, we even recognize Daniel and I recognize that we haven't seen as many pediatric patients probably just due to our own comfort as we should being vestibular audiologists. So I think there's a big opportunity for all of us to really try to incorporate seeing this population. And, and one of the things that I've often think about is there's, there's always like this gray area of (laughs) the pediatric vestibular population. What do we do when we're seeing these? I mean, obviously we're doing some of these, um, patients have described caloric testing as barbaric (laughs) and uh and you know are these tests that we typically perform on our on our adult patients are they applicable for a pediatric um patient and that's kind of what we're going to be discussing we're going to be discussing all of these different um things of how we can adapt our testing or what other tests do we bring into our battery to um when we encounter these patients yeah So let's dive right in. Let's talk about the vestibular system. Obviously, in adults and pediatrics, the anatomy is the same, um, but the development of these reflexes, our vestibular reflexes, can kind of mature over time. So Daniel, run us through that. Yeah, definitely. So as we all know, there are a ton of different vestibular reflexes that are present in the human body. We are, you know, mainly focus on three um, here. Of course, our main one, the vestibular ocular reflex, which we're all familiar with, and um, that particular reflex is going to be a mature about the age of four. And so um, that's one of the, the, the primary reflex that we use to assess the peripheral vestibular system, uh, followed by the VSR, the vestibulospinal reflex. That continues and a little bit, that's a little bit more complex in its development, typically mature around the um, adolescent years, age 15 about. Um, and lastly, the vestibulocolic reflex, which is the primary reflex pathway that we measure when we're testing uh, CVEMPs or when we're performing CVEMPs on patients. And uh, that's actually present in infants. And it's actually one of the earliest reflexes that are fully developed at birth. Yeah. And just because these mature at a certain age, four years, 15 years, it doesn't mean that you can't assess that reflex, but it's just something to be aware of as we talk about this conversation. So let's talk about incidence and prevalence. So when we when we think about kids, kids report dizziness very differently than adults. And the kids that I've seen in the clinic, I always tell the parents, you don't 
come out knowing what the word dizzy or vertigo means. Like usually that is an adult construct of a feeling or a sensation. And so very rarely will you have a kid come to you and say, I'm having vertigo because really they don't know what that means unless an adult tells them what that means. So the complaints or the observations you may see in a pediatric patient are much different than an adult. They may, you know, demonstrate delayed motor milestones. Maybe they're just nauseous or sick or car sickness. Um, they have, they're clumsy. They're considered a clumsy kid or have bad, you know, eye foot coordination or eye hand coordination. They fall, they, you know, clutch onto somebody while they're walking. There's just very different types of display of dizziness disorders in the pediatric population, which makes it a little bit hard to understand the true incidence or prevalence. Right. That's a really good point. And so it really relies on a lot of these uh, observations that Liz um, mentioned. It also re relies so heavily on the case history from the parent, the parental case history, because they're going to be the primary observers on the uh, this child's day-to-day -day routine. And so they'll be able to report on a lot of these different things that... Um, that may kind of lead us to suspect, is there a, an underlying vestibular function or vestibular uh, impairment? Um, also, another thing is, you know, not a lot of uh, clinics necessarily complete vestibular testing in children. And if they do, it ranges um, as far as what tests are being performed, um, you know, the experience and comfort level of the clinician. And so there's not necessarily a solid standard hey vestibular test battery this is what we should be doing in kids and so we may not necessarily also have you know a, a, a true representation or an accurate representation of how many kids out there are actually walking around with a vestibular impairment yeah so obviously exactly what you touched on the prevalence in the incidence can be very underreported we do know there have been a number of studies that have tried to put you know, a little bit better idea on how many children are impacted by vestibular disorders. We know there was an O'Reilly um, study in 2010 that said that children are much less impacted, you know, than adults by vestibular disorders. And I think there's a lot of reasons we'll get into about that. But it's thought generally from studies ranging from 1999 to 2021 that anywhere up to 15% of children experience some sort of dizziness or balance concern. And, you know, the ranges are anywhere from less than 1% to 15%, which, as we said, maybe even an underrepresentation of what's Definitely. going on. So let's, let's talk about where these vestibular disorders in children can actually arise from. There's a lot of different areas. Um, it can be, you know, a there can be genetic components, there can be acquired components, um, immune-related, virus-related, trauma-related, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, pharmacological, you know, influences. And so just, you know, like adults, there are um, a lot of these potential um, contributors to uh, vestibular disorders in children, too. But let's talk about some of the more common things that we see in children. Yeah, so I, I did want to mention before we get into common disorders that we see, um, there's one thing that we know has a very, very high incidence for uh, correlating with vestibular dysfunction, and that is hearing loss in pediatrics. So if you are in a pediatric clinic or you ever see kids for a hearing test, uh, it's good to be aware of how high the incidence is is between hearing loss and vestibular dysfunction. And I kind of separated this out with thinking about types of hearing loss in kids. 
So most commonly and studied is sensory neural hearing loss in children. So we know that if kids are born with hearing loss or shortly acquire hearing loss after birth, there's a very high incidence of them having vestibular damage, loss, or dysfunction. Um, previous studies have shown that anywhere from 20 to 85% of children with sensory neural hearing loss have some sort of vestibular dysfunction, whether that's unilateral or bilateral loss. And the highest prevalence is in children with the more severe hearing loss, so severe to profound hearing loss. Um, even in kids who have conductive hearing loss, so otitis media, have, can have some sort of vestibular disturbance, whether that's temporary or if it's you know, something that's more chronic for them. So it's something to consider even if there's not a permanent hearing loss, um, whether they're having any sort of impact on their motor development. Now, we, oh no. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, no, I was just kind of surprised at, you know, such the, the wide range of mm -hmm. children with sensory and neural hearing loss, you know, have that potential for a vestibular impairment. I mean, why do we, why do we think that it, there is such a wide range there? Yeah, I was trying to think about that because the, the studies I looked at were from anywhere from 2009 to 2017 mm -hmm. that reported that. And I think, you know, part of it is maybe the amount of hearing loss. Right, so right. since we're near hearing loss in children, there's obviously a pretty tight criteria for what is qualified. So someone with a mild hearing loss or, a, you know, minimal, I know some sites use that term, minimal sensory neural hearing loss in the pediatric population, they may not have vestibular dysfunction. But I think pretty consistent in the studies, although severe to profound, like mm -hmm. it's more likely to occur but yeah what what are your thoughts on that no i yeah i was that was probably the only thing i can probably think of is was just the the differences in the degree of hearing loss and yeah. you know not surprising those with more severe to profound hearing loss are probably more likely to have um an underlying vestibular impairment yeah and we do know you know one thing that i always thought has is really interesting this is like a research interest of mine but cochlear implant recipients um, 80% of the cochlear implant recipient population showed a reduced or complete loss of vestibular function. And I think that's really interesting. If you see CIs at your clinic, I always think it's super cool to do pre and post vestibular assessments. And it doesn't have to be super comprehensive necessarily, but some sort of screener before and after the surgery, because especially when you're thinking about the pediatric population, I think it's important that parents and the patient know if they have reduced function because as you age, that's going to have pretty significant ramifications, you know, for them, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking beyond, obviously, we know hearing loss has a really high correlation with vestibular dysfunction. And obviously, there's a lot of anatomical or genetic reasons that this may occur. But let's let's just get into the most common type of disorders that you may see in a pediatric population. Yeah, so probably the most common um, type of disorder that you'll see in this population. We're gonna we're gonna use the the more familiar term, yes. but we'll discuss um, you know some changes that that recently happened with this. But it is BPVC or benign paroxysmal uh, paroxysmal vertigo of childhood. Um, mm -hmm. Now this isn't BPPV, which I think often. Um, I know that's yeah. what I thought when I first uh, came across this term. Same. Um, but it is so it is a type of vertigo that most often is associated with um, migraines, um, is at least the current um, mm -hmm. kind of thought uh, behind this. But it typically occurs in children 
around uh, between the ages of two and six. Um, it could be a precursor to developing uh, migraines in the future as well. Um, but let's, Liz, walk us through um, why BPVC is no longer called BPVC. <laughs> I know. I feel like I have, this is like the most insider information I feel like I've ever had <laughs> in audiology in general. But when I went to Baronese Society this year, someone had referred to this new criteria and I'm like, what? Like, when did this change happen? Um, so I did a poll on our Instagram last week and I had like asked about the most common disorder and every, like a lot of people said BPVC and I had marked it as the wrong answer. I felt so bad, but the answer is here. There is a new diagnostic criteria that came out in 2021, hot off the press and the title of it, we'll make sure to post this, but it's uh, vestibular migraine and recurrent vertigo of childhood. And it's a new diagnostic criteria that was developed in conjunction with Baronese Society and the International Headache Society. And really instead of BPVC, there's now three subsets of criteria, um, vestibular migraine of childhood, probable vestibular migraine of childhood, and then recurrent vertigo of childhood. So these are the new terms that you need to be referring to. And the criteria, I think, first of all, sounds very similar to our migraine criteria that we discussed Definitely. in a, a previous yeah. episode, but it also gives better clarity for the patients, for the parents, and for the clinicians to make sure that you're really sending the patient to the right people because I think BPVC can be a very um, I don't know I think I think we refer to these as catch-all diagnoses mm -hmm. in the pediatric population when you weren't really sure and so now we've got a little bit more clarity so first of all Daniel were you aware of this because I was not before I heard about this I was not no this was new to me um, but again it, you know the research you know before it hits, yeah, the the amount of time it takes to kind of disseminate, you know, among the general population is, you know, does, it does take quite a long time. So ha being that it was just published in 2021, uh, it's not surprising why many, many of us have not uh, come across these new terms. Yeah. So there's three, like I said, those three new criteria, I think we should just kind of run through and we'll post these yeah. the diagnostic criteria on our Instagram as well and Twitter so that you're aware of what's going on. But for vestibular migraine of childhood, again, this sounds super similar to the adult population. You need to have at least five episodes of vestibular symptoms. Um, you need to have a current or past history of migraine with or without aura. And at least half of the episodes have to be um, correlated with one of those migraine features. So either a headache, photophobia or phonophobia or a visual aura. And then to be qualified for this diagnosis, you have to be less than 18 years of age, and it's not better accounted for by another vestibular disorder, a headache disorder, or other condition. And I know we had mentioned this when we were talking about through our migraine episode. I think it's super cool that they say it can't be accounted for by another vestibular disorder because that makes a vestibular audiologist a very critical part of being diagnosed right. with VMC. So the next probable vestibular migraine is... A little bit different, but it's really actually very similar to what we actually what I would classify as definite vestibular migraine of childhood. But the really the only difference is you only need to have one of them, either a migraine or one of the headache features that uh, Liz had mentioned. So either those headaches that uh, meet those uh, meet certain characteristics, uh, those sensitivities either to uh, to light or sound. Um, and uh, visual auras. So very, very similar to some of the definite and probable vestibular migraine uh, diagnostic criteria that we see in adults. Um, very similar for, for children as well. 
The third subset is um, recurrent vertigo of childhood. And that is how it's differentiated is that there's really no migraine characteristics. So we know the definite has already been diagnosed with some sort of migraine and has the features, the probable, maybe you don't have the diagnosis. You may just have some of the features. Recurrent vertigo of childhood, you really shouldn't have any of those migraineous features or diagnosis. And to qualify, you need to have three episodes of vestibular symptoms, anywhere from one minute to 72 hours, these poor kids. Jeez. Uh, none of the criteria that fits vestibular migraine of childhood, you have to be less than 18 years of age, and of course, not better accounted for by another vestibular issue going on. And so looking at these new subsets, I think this is moving in the right direction for clinicians, instead of just having one catch-all diagnosis, we really have better diagnostic criteria and you know conclusions about um, what we should consider for our patients who may be reporting some of these complaints. So Liz, let's get into how we actually, what is the basic evaluation um, when a dizzy pediatric patient walks into your clinic? What are some things as the clinician that you can do? Um, one, I guess the, the first line of defense or the first kind of assessment that you can do is basically that one of the most important components of any evaluation is going to be that case history. Um, and there are several different things that I think you can ask during your case history to give you some kind of insight into underlying vestibular function. One is going to be this, the, do the parents have any concerns, um, either with, with their balance and, or have they met many of their milestones related to, uh, balance? There was a great paper by Chris and Janke et al. in, uh, 2017 called Predictive Factors for Vestibular Loss in Children with Hearing Loss. And they actually developed a few different milestones that we can keep our eyes on or keep in our back pocket when we're talking and having this discussion with, with the parents. So, um, you know, two milestones that are often referred to are the, the, the age at which the child begins to sit, which is about seven, um, it's about seven months and age to walking, which is about 14 and a half months. Um, Liz, yeah, so these, yeah. These are the cutoffs. You know, if, if a kid comes in and you're asking about developmental history, you know, pregnancy and birth history, um, and then when the kid had started to do such things, if they, you know, if the parent reports, oh, he started to walk at age, you know, 15, 16 months, your index for suspicion for a vestibular disorder should be rising significantly because, you know, after the study that Kristen Jenke's group did, over 14, point, 14 and a half months, if the parent says, yeah, they started to walk after that cutoff, that's when your index for suspicion rises. So these are really the cutoffs for when they should definitely already be doing it. And if they aren't, they may have a vestibular disorder. Yeah. Excellent. So Liz, tell, tell us about the the what they found with regard to pure tone average, which I thought was really interesting. Yes. So the other thing, and I think it's just like a quick and dirty thing to keep in the back of your mind if you're testing kids hearing, um, the other thing in this paper that they found was if the pure tone average was greater than 66 dB, again, that index for suspicion for a vestibular disorder should be increasing. And again, this is just nice to have a cutoff for like, if PTA is over 66, I need to be sending for vestibular or at least be screening in some capacity this child for a possible vestibular impairment. So obviously, we went through a few things you can maybe add to your case history or your questions um, or just those cutoffs to be aware of. 
where a pediatric patient may have a higher incidence of vestibular disorders, if they say yes to some of those concerns or if the hearing test, for example, the PTA is higher, uh, there are some questionnaires, more formalized questionnaires that you can provide to the patient and the parent. Um, really two that I am aware of and would use more frequently. The first one is called the Pediatric DHI, the Dizziness Handicap Inventory, which we know is one of the most widely used right. adult uh, questionnaires. It comes out of Vanderbilt. It's appropriate for ages 5 to 12. And, you know, some of the questions for an example is, does your child's problem um, make her feel tired or is the li is their life affected by their problem? You know, just kind of looking at, again, the functional impact and maybe the emotional and physical impact of some of their concerns. The other one that's, um, I think, pretty widely used is ages 5 to 17. So you can use this going up to, you know, age 17, pediatric vestibular symptom questionnaire. And really that questionnaire, instead of a yes, sometimes no, is uh, most of the time, sometimes almost never, never, I'm not sure. And so it's a little bit different of a scale to evaluate what the patient may be experiencing. And some of those are focused more on like feeling sick, feeling unsteady, you know, like those true sensations and feelings that the patient may be experiencing. So those are two questionnaires that even if you don't have vestibular testing or if you do, um, you can have available to employ and really evaluate what level of concern and maybe where to send them. Yeah, and especially when we, we'll, we haven't gotten to the actual specific vestibular measures that you can use right. in this population, but we're already starting to build at least some evidence that we can use to justify any recommendations or any referral recommendations that we make um, after the appointment. So this is, these are a lot of great, great tools to have, um, especially, you know, when you see these, these young kids. Uh, now we've, we've done an episode on bedside testing, but we ne didn't necessarily do um, an, a, a really an episode or we haven't really talked about what what bedside tests can you use to assess a, a pediatric patient's balance um, and probably the most most common um, assessment that balance assessment that you'll you'll see in the pediatric vestibular world is the single leg stance um, this was kind of first published by um Condon and, and Kremen in, in 2014, and they actually came out with some pretty nice and simple cutoffs um, that you can use to assess balance in this population. Uh, for example, they found that um, by two and a half years, you should ch ch uh, ch uh, children should have the ability to actually do this task, to stand on a single leg. Uh, by three years, they should be doing it by two, uh, for two seconds at least, by four, five seconds, and by five, 10 seconds. And so if your um, patient is not meeting these um, kind of cutoff values, then that should um, kind of raise that suspicion once again. But an excellent um, a screener that, that anybody can do, you know, doesn't require any type of special equipment. So, um, and this is not even, we haven't even gotten into any of our objective testing yet. Yeah. And that was one of the questions we'd received on our Instagram was, is this single leg test still a thing? And yes, it is. Um, we'll post this chart from their paper that looked at patients up to 12 and above. But once you get to about 10, 11, 12, um, kids and even adults should usually do a pretty good job at 
being able to stand on one leg for a significant amount of time. There's also, you know, the op option and opportunity to use dynamic foam, balance foam, especially in your older pediatric patients, because once you reach a certain age and that VSR really gets a step or yeah, the VSR gets established, they should be able to have good postural control. Um, there's two screeners that I, I have identified that I think are probably the best to use if you don't have much equipment or any equipment. And Daniel, you may think of more, but um, one is the head impulse test, which I think we definitely talked about in our bedside screener, but just run us through that again. Yeah, so the head impulse test is actually the the uh, cheap version of the video head impulse test. It doesn't, again, doesn't require any equipment. You're having the patient focus on the tip of your nose and you're moving their head from side to side looking for any abnormal catch-up saccades. Um, the head impulse test, it's very, very, very sensitive for complete vestibular loss. And so if you're, if you have complete vestibular loss, particularly if you have uh, greater than about 40 to 50% vestibular loss, your the head impulse, the bedside head impulse test should catch it. And so it's, it's a great assessment to catch those more severe uh, impairments, of course, Anything more mild than that forty to fifty percent cutoff is um, it, it, it's not going to to do a, a great job at, at identifying those. But it's quick. You don't need those. Uh, you don't need that expensive equipment. Um, the only really downside is it does require some you know clinician experience and comfort. There's a there's certain comfort level that you have to have in order to to administer those tests. And um, you have to be able to identify um, those quick uh, corrective saccades immediately after that uh, impulse. And I know a lot of times that I've seen this um, in the clinic or done this in the clinic, you're really looking at that vestibular ocular reflex. So you're holding the patient and usually you're face to face with them. A lot of times pediatric vestibular audiologists will put a sticker on their nose or something mm -hmm. for the child to focus on. And you do that quick impulse or quick movement of their head and you tell them to focus on the sticker or focus on your nose or your mask or whatever we're wearing these days. Um, and if it's a normal response, the patient should be able to keep their eyes fixated on the sticker on your nose without any slippage. If it's an abnormal response, like what you were talking about um, with loss over probably 40 or 50% loss, the patient's eyes will slip off the target. So their eyes will move with their head and then you're gonna see this big quick eye movement back to the sticker, back to your nose. Um, so that's easy to do. It's just how comfortable you are doing it and getting used to it is probably the hardest part. Um, but kids are very tolerant of it. The other thing that's super easy and doesn't require as much comfort of the clinician is called dynamic visual acuity testing. And this can be done with very little equipment. Um, it is, again, an objective evaluation of the VOR. And the whole purpose of it is comparing how well the child can read or identify you know, images with their head still versus their head moving. And so you can use what's called a Snellen chart. It's that eye chart when you go to get your vision tested. And you can either get a traditional Snellen chart or there's even a Snellen chart picture uh, version. So if the child cannot read or doesn't know how to read, they're like little emojis and like yeah. symbols. And I feel like that would even be just more interesting for the child to look at oh, too. Like, sure. yeah, they would- Letters they are would, boring. Yeah, right, who wants to do <laughs> but, that? Essentially, um, the child would read or you know identify the smallest line possible with their head still, and then we start moving their head or they can move it. But usually in pediatrics, I recommend that the clinician move their head just because 
you can keep it at a standardized movement speed, and then they read the smallest line possible. Normal response, they shouldn't really have much difference between head still versus head moving. Should be less than two lines difference. It's abnormal if they move up three or more lines on that Snellen chart. So if you've managed to kind of do all of these assessments that we've talked about so far, that kind of leads us into more of our objective testing. Again, we're all trying to answer that same question, right? All of these assessments are going to help us identify or answer, does this child that's sitting right in front of you, do they have an underlying impairment? And uh, it's always good to have all of these, these nice bedside evaluation, these questionnaires, that case history to back everything up. But as we know, we also like to include objective data with our testing, uh, which we have plenty of in the vestibular world. So, um, you know, probably the most friendly pediatric um, vestibular test that we could um, kind of perform. Again, this is going to look different for each patient that walks through your door. You're going to be on that on their time ultimately. So if you can't, um, which is get, kind of true yes. with adults too. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, so you know, you may have to get a little bit more creative as to how um, how you obtain these data, but. You know, these are just some tests that, you know, we and, and other clinicians have found to be uh, a little bit more friendly uh, for our pediatric patients. So first being video head impulse test, which is going to be basically the same thing as that, hem that bedside hem head impulse test that we uh, just talked about uh, with the addition of allowing us to then measure all, even the vertical uh, semicircular canals. Uh, VEMP testing, cervical and ocular VEMP testing is pretty um easy to collect i would i would imagine on um you know some of the younger kids well we could talk about some of the adaptations that we may um kind of employ when we're collecting these data and then finally rotational chair testing so uh liz it, how, when we're when we're trying to perform these uh measures on young children what types of things do we need to keep in the back of our mind what types of adaptations do we need to make yeah, so I think, you know, going into this testing, the biggest myth that I think was busted, you know, for years and years with more studies is that testing in children with these tests that we just described, it's reliable and it's repeatable. So there's really no excuse to not try for these tests. We know, especially if you've ever seen kids in the clinic, that it's very possible you might not get complete test results on something. That's just a nature of doing peds. Uh, but there are some modifications and adaptations that you can make. We're going to be posting a super nice, and I don't know if I'll post it all as one chart. I might have to split it up. Uh, but in 2017, Dodal and McCaslin had this amazing chart that I just found about when you're doing certain tests of the VNG, uh, you know, and rotary chair, VEMPs, et cetera, what should you consider or what notes should you keep in mind? For example, you know, with cervical and ocular VEMPs, there's examples of like how you can do different flexion uh, protocols with EMG monitoring to make sure that kids stay, you know, within the appropriate EMG. Um, OVIMP probably shouldn't be something that you do less than three years of age. So there's just all these different examples. If you're seeing peds or you want to see peds, it's you can do it with these modifications and adaptations. I feel like this makes it very practical on how you can employ tests. And I think it's good, you know, knowing that like V-HIT, CNO VEMPs, and rotary chair, those are good low threshold, very reliable, repeatable tests to start with and just see what you can get with your patient. 
Yeah, that's a really good point, Liz. I know with with a lot of the things that we've learned, it's like all of these testings are all of this these the, these tests that we administer to our patients, they are typically going to be, they were developed for the adult population, but mm -hmm. there are very, very simple things that you could do to collect reliable data. Um, and you're already measuring the high frequency uh, region of the VOR, the mid frequency region of yeah. the VOR, and some otolith uh, assessments. And so that covers a lot of the um, standard vestibular test battery. And so, yeah, if you have access to these, the, to this equipment, you know, go for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, you know, in general, like I said at the beginning, Daniel and I are probably not the models for like fully implementing pediatrics. I think there's some considerations from the clinical side. For example, right. if you're doing a rotational chair testing, you may need to get pediatric goggles that fit the head. You may need to get, you know, a car seat insert. So there's things that you may have to do as a clinic to get up and running, but they're very achievable. And I think, you know, from my perspective, it's it can be scary to get into the pediatric realm, but I think there's a huge need um, to have this true objective data. I know there's been quite a few studies about how kids can have not only delayed motor milestones, but even delayed like psychological um, development, social concerns, emotional academic concerns. There's been some good papers about um, impaired dynamic visual acuity and reading abilities. So I think in the pediatric population, vestibular testing is necessary for the for children that have concerns or maybe are delayed because it can have implications academically, socially, Definitely. and then even as they age, we need to be aware of what dysfunction that they have. I think that's something that I haven't heard many people touch on, but if you have vestibular dysfunction as a child, how are you going to perform as an 80 year old? Like that's concerning. That's such a good point because if these things are present at birth, yep. I mean, you got a whole life of yes. other um, activities that they may not be able to participate in all. I mean, just the effects are go for a lifetime and it's just yeah. um, to be aware and to identify these disorders or these impairments as early as possible is so important. And if you do identify vestibular dysfunction, there's obviously a number of actions to take place as right. you know as the audiologist we always are kind of wondering okay what next what you know rehab what other testing in the pediatric population i would encourage you to get in touch with a neurotologist or otologist to determine the etiology of why i think that's so important i think we should sometimes brush things off in the adult populations about eh, it could be a neuritis from a something but in pediatrics i do think it's important just from a developmental perspective to make sure that you really know where this is coming from and luckily, kids can compensate pretty quickly, usually, um, from a vestibular impairment. And that's why I think a lot are missed because kids are so active and moving that a lot of times you may not notice the same changes. Um, but I think it's good to know if a head injury occurs in the future or if there's something going on where there may be periods of what's called decompensation. And, and you know, being aware of that, I think, is very helpful for the parent as well. Absolutely. So hopefully we provided, you know, some foundational knowledge um, that you could use and implement pretty immediately if you have at least the equipment or if you don't, you have these these bedside evaluations that we talked about that you can start implementing in your clinic and your day to day when if you do come if you do have a um, dizzy pediatric patient. And so. Yeah, Liz, anything anything else to add with regard to some of the things we discussed? 
I don't know. I think it's a good challenge. You know, a lot of times we've talked about why we like doing this podcast. And I think part of it is it encourages us to do things outside of our comfort zones and to learn things. (laughs) And I think this is one area that there is a huge need in our field. I did do a, a poll also on our Instagram last week of who was seeing the pediatric vestibular patients, who wasn't, and who wants to. And the largest category is people who want to, whether you're a student or a current audiologist. And I think, I hope through this and then the resources we're going to post, you feel like this is something you can do. Because I think part of it, you know, it's within our scope. And I think part of it is just you feeling more comfortable doing it. And I think with the resources we have available, it's possible. So I, I would love to hear from anybody who starts seeing pediatric patients or maybe who already is of anything we've missed or anything you've learned um, because I think we're going to only get stronger by having these conversations and by relying on each other for yep. resources. And I think we're pretty, we're kind of in the days or the early days of how I, I often think back to all of the discussions, all of the research that went around early identification of children in, with hearing loss yes. um, and how a lot of this, this has been Daniel's <laughs> MO for like three years and I'm yeah. so excited. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of these things, you know, one, I mean, now we're learning about the potential impact of vestibular impairment and it had to, I mean, how could we not think that a, vest, under, a vestibular impairment affects all of these other domains that yeah, children go through during their lives? And so, um, you know, you know, I, I think just we're in, a, in, a, in an exciting time in uh, vestibular practice and vestibular science in general um, to, to be able to contribute to identifying more and more of these kids. It's not going, if anything, that's just going to benefit them as they uh, move about their lives. And I think it is cool when we looked at kind of the top vestibular tests that have been validated and, you know, reliable in children. Rotary chair obviously has been around for a while, but like VIA and VEMPS are like new in the research and yep. they're objective, they're quick, and they're like some of the best things that we have to evaluate the periphery. And so I think that's just cool because like we're in a revolution, vestibular revolution yes. of like new <laughs> things happening and yeah, like new implications, whether that's newborn vestibular screenings or like, you know, long-term, you know, evaluations for these patients. Like, should we be evaluating these pediatric patients who have lost like every 20 years every 10 years like after every head injury like after whatever like it's just it opens a lot of doors for where vestibular could go and we just need more people doing pediatric testing so that we can get a better idea yeah and there's actually a, a a really amazing research group i believe in belgium that had they've started um lean may dr lean may she's started that whole uh, infant vestibular screening uh, protocols over there and, and trying to get more vestibular scientists involved and clinicians involved in implementing protocols around the world. So very Are exciting. Are CVAMPs or do you know what they're, they're doing? They're primarily uh, using CVAMPs to identify yeah. um, underlying vestibular impairment. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Well, and I know CVAMP is one that you can measure like within days right. of a child being right. born. OVAMPs, you know, maybe not till they're two or three and Uh, But I think that's super cool. And I could see, you know, we've had some, when you think about the newborn hearing, like ABR setup, what's more adding one more electrode to the neck, just like turning the head and doing it. I don't know. It's, it's really cool. So I'm excited to see what comes of it. I hope you guys are feeling just as energized by this episode and all the ideas that come forth. And please keep us in the know of anything that you find or that's helpful to you as you test this population. We were happy to share it with the community. And I know we are going to be posting 
a plethora of resources on our Instagram and on our Twitter. So if you're not already following us, please do. And uh, share this episode with your colleagues, with your bosses, with people who are in those decision-making positions. Yep. And reach out to us if you have any other questions. We're always here. And next month, we are going to have a guest speaker. We will wait to reveal who it is, but I (laughs) guarantee you will not want to miss this guest speaker. This is probably our biggest guest speaker we've had on our podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We're very, very excited for next month's episode. So stay tuned for more details, and we'll see you next month.